All right. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the wonderful privilege you give us. We thank you for calling us your children, your adopted sons. We thank you for your word that sets us free. And most of all, we thank you for your son and giving him up for us all. So that whoever believes in him will never perish, but has eternal life. Father, please bless this message. Have your spirit guide us. Help us open our ears to hear in humility what your message is for us tonight. We thank you for all you do for us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. Salvation, deliverance, is from our Creator and Redeemer. I hope you're seeing how things uh, synchronize in the Word of God. And I suggest that for the first part of the lesson, you just sit back and relax, um, even if you're a note-taker. We're going to have a lot of uh, review from Sunday, um, some, some of the main points, and also some stuff that the Spirit has added in there. So as we begin, let's start in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. <clears throat> And keep in mind as we read this verse and other verses, our our topic on the board, uh, emphasizing in particular the Creator and what that means to us. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we talked on Sunday about why. Why does it say that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And when we look at the next verse, we get a glimpse. For it is God, and when you see the word God, think about your Creator and all that means. It is God, your Creator, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That should give us fear. That should give us a great pause You and I have been called by the creator of the universe and the one who gave us life, our creator. We've been called by him. We've been called out for a special purpose. What other than fear and awe are the proper responses to that reality? That's what we should be thinking about right now. If you saw God right now in all of his glory, what might you do? What do you think you would do? What did they do in the Old Testament when they got a glimpse of God? We know, right? They fell flat in their faces. They fell flat in their faces. It's not like they took a minute and bowed. They fell. They couldn't look at him. Their face was to the ground. And that's the kind of awe that I think we'll each experience when we see him. At the same time, feeling the perfect comfort of his love. But that's who he is. He's so far far beyond what we can even fathom, and it just takes a little bit of faith in that reality to let that work to our spiritual advantage, to properly uh, have, have the proper perspective of who he is as creator. 
And so in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God, your creator, who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. On the board, we saw on Sunday, the Lord and his plan for saving and delivering mankind can be seen in his roles as creator and redeemer. That's what we're going to explore this week, and we're going to see this pattern in the Word of God as well. Turn again to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. <clears throat> Acts 20, 21. And this verse uh, seems to be our signature verse regarding the point on the board uh, that, that God's plan to save and redeem, redeem us or save and deliver us can be seen in his roles as creator and redeemer. Paul said in verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice again, this was Paul's way of preaching the gospel to everybody, not limited to anyone in particular. To be saved, every man in his short time on earth must first recognize God as their creator. And then that God is also their redeemer as well in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, acknowledging God as creator and then as redeemer is a wonderful analog of repentance and faith, as we see in this verse. Repentance toward God, our Creator, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. So there's a distinction made. Salvation and deliverance come from acknowledging the Creator and Redeemer, and we're going to see more of this, but also this is a pattern in the spiritual life. Repentance and faith toward the Creator and Redeemer. This is also how we live the spiritual life after our day of salvation. This is how we're saved and sanctified in our daily lives, living in the gospel reality by repentance and faith toward our Creator and Redeemer. Why do you think the Lord loves the faith of a child so much? Why is that the greatest type of faith rather than the scholar or the Pharisee or the even the mature believer, why is that brought out so much in the Scriptures to us, the faith of a child? The same faith that we had at salvation is the same faith He wants us to just keep living in. You know what I mean? The same faith for, towards God, repentance towards God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same faith He wants us to just, like a child, keep chasing your father. You know, keep following your father. Keep admiring your father, however you want to look at it from a child's point of view. That's it. There's not like this, this intellectual, deep secret that you have to figure out. There's a lot to learn in the plan of God, but that just magnifies this. It magnifies this simple, awesome reality. So, again, on the board, this is how we are saved and sanctified in our daily lives living in this gospel reality by repentance and faith toward our Creator and Redeemer. Hmm. The first will be last, the last will be first, right? Those that follow Him with childlike faith are going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. 
It's awesome. So we've also seen it's only when we believers forget about this simplicity, including our victory in Christ and our unchangeable position as his child, when we forget those things, we forget how to live in the gospel reality, which again really is to go back to that faith of a child. The very act of living in the gospel reality that I am saved and already victorious in Christ, that is the very means of sanctification. When you and I live like that, that brings God tremendous pleasure and glory. Just like a father would love that his child has no questions or doubts about him, right? That the father knows the father, uh, this child knows the father's going to be there for him, knows the father's going to provide for him. With this innocent childlike faith, which has no doubting even possible in it. And that's what we see here, living in the gospel reality. We're called to live in our position in Christ. That's who we are. That's what we are. We're in Christ. So the point on the board again, the very act of living in the gospel reality, that I am saved and already victorious in Christ, That is the very means of being sanctified or living the life set apart for God. If we do this on the board in the devil's world, that's when our light shines the most, isn't it? Not when we're, you know, intellectualizing or or overanalyzing things, but when we're living in our victory in Christ and possessing that peace and that reality and that joy, that's when our light shines the most. And that's what brings God the most glory. In front, of, in front of people and the angels. <clears throat> How can a person live in the victory fully unless he knows all about the victory? So here's where we get a little balance statement, okay? Because really, living the sanctified life is as simple as what you see on the board, but on the, on the same token, it's in conjunction with the Word of God that this can take place. And it's dependent on how much attention we give the Word of God that, therefore, we can live a more and more sanctified life. We're able to live the gospel reality more and more as long as we do it in conjunction with the Word of God on a daily basis. And we see that in Hebrews 4.12 and John 17.17. How does a righteous man live by faith? How does that take place? He needs the Word of God as his guide. What are we having faith in? The Word of God, right? Without the Word of God, we would have no um, boundaries. We'd have no instruction, nothing concrete. But yet, the Word of God is our source to live by faith. And the Word of God is also our source of encouragement, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but most of the time I read the Word of God, I get some kind of encouragement that I needed at that moment. So this is God's awesome, perfect tool for us to utilize to live in that gospel reality every day, more and more and more, to understand the victory more, which we'll never understand in this life fully, okay? To understand the victory more, we'll be able to live in that reality more and that freedom. When the Lord Jesus was praying for all of us in John chapter 17, before his crucifixion, he said this to the Father in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And that short statement says a whole lot, doesn't it? Sanctify them. That's been our topic. Sanctify them in the truth. In other words, set them apart in the truth. And your word is truth. So that that plain, simple, powerful reality, that's our way to bring God the most glory, to live in the victory. Turn to Hebrews 4, verse 12 for another reminder. Again, our point on the board was in conjunction with the Word of God and dependent on how much attention we give it, we are more and more sanctified. We're able to live the gospel reality more and more if we stay in conjunction with the Word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. And the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What else can do those impossible things? Nothing. But that's why we need the word every day if we're going to live in the victory and understand the victory fully. I also shared with you What has helped me recently to live in this gospel reality is this simple principle that God put on my heart recently, and that is the simple fact that life is temporary. Very temporary, right? I mean, who are we to say that that we're not going to get bombed tonight by Russia and we're gone off the map? All of us at once. That would be nice, right? Not as good as the rapture, but not bad. As long as it happens quick, right? Quick and easy. You don't know what happened. But the point is, that is how temporary life is, right? God might pluck each one of us out. You know, we might lose five or ten of us this year in this congregation. How do we know, right? We all might be called tonight, tomorrow, back home. It's so, so, so temporary. And when we remind ourselves of that, we're set free from the world being our taskmaster, right? Why am I worried about my job? You know, I still struggle with that. Every day I'm like, gee, is it going to work out today? Am I going to make any money today? Is it going to be a, a, a bad day or a good day? I'm like, how foolish, right? Do not be anxious for anything, Philippians 4, 6. And when life is, is remembered as temporary as it is, gosh, who really cares about what happens today? You do, I mean, you do your work is unto the Lord, but the results are up to Him, right? We worry about the silliest things. <clears throat> Think about the fact that life could be required of you today and that when that time comes, that is totally 100% dependent on God's sovereign decision. Right? There's no if, ands, or buts. You don't have a part in that. And I was thinking about the fact that there are people that try to commit suicide and it doesn't work. And it should have worked. I mean, you hear people taking whatever, let's just say a whole bottle of pills. I mean, there's no way that they should be alive, right? Whether someone caught them in time, whether they threw up involuntarily, blah, blah, whatever. I'm getting way too specific, but you know this, right? A lot of people try to commit suicide and it doesn't work out. Why? When for the, the other guy who tries or, did, or half-heartedly tries, he's gone. He dies. It's God's time. God said, okay, I will take you out of that. 
The other person said, I'm sorry, it's not the right time. There are people in the tribulation period, right? That the Bible says they will try to kill themselves because of the torture that happens during the tribulation period, and they won't be able to. And they will have to live during that period. And that, of course, is God's grace to hopefully bring them in humility to Christ, uh, as most of them are unbelievers in the trib. But think about that. Your life, our lives, are 100% dependent on God's sovereign decision. And it is temporary, of course. So remembering that should help us live in the now and not to take any day for granted and to count each day as a gift, as it should be. Life is temporary. We're all just passing through. That's what the scriptures say in many, many verses in many ways. When we forget that reality, we start living then for ourselves, questioning why our own comforts aren't being met. Isn't that when we get in trouble? When we forget that reality? That we're just pilgrims passing through, according to the scripture? We start living for ourselves. We question, why, why aren't my comforts being met? God, how come you're not giving me this or blessing me in that area or taking this pain away? We start focusing on our life as though it were our own. But when we remember life is temporary, we acknowledge the pure gift that life is. That we don't even deserve to be here in the first place. We see the big picture of which we are a very small part, although still important to God. When we remember that life itself is only temporary for each and every one of us, that should snap us back into place. Maybe that needs to be part of your prayer life. Lord, remind me how temporary my life is, how limited my life is and, and what your purpose is. That should snap us back into the reality of the sanctified life that God has called us and plucked us out of the fire and set us apart for his purposes by grace. And the unique opportunity and brief opportunity that that is. Go again to James chapter 4, verse 13. Here's a verse that you might want to kind of remember where it is as a good reminder of the temporary nature of our lives. James 4.13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city, and we'll spend a year there, and we'll engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Think about a vapor right now. Picture that for just a second. You know the steam coming out of your tea kettle, right? And how quick that dissipates. Gone. That's your life. What a visual. Instead of the guy in verse 13, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we'll live and do this or that. So on the board, we talked about this on Sunday. The first guy left someone out. Are you done with that guy? Kind of like Joe Pesci and, what was it again, uh, my cousin Vinny? I'm done with this guy. I'm done with that guy. Are you done with that guy? The guy on your shoulder, the bad roommate, who keeps telling you, just go do what you want. Go start a business. You, you'll, you'll make it big. You're good. You're good at that. You're smart. Go get rich. 
Are you done with that guy? Without consulting the Lord. The second guy acknowledged God when making plans. Right? In verse 15. And in between is the vapor that is your life. So which guy will you be before you vanish away? Mr. Vapor. Miss Vapor. Which guy are you going to be? Which guy will God be able to say that you were in front of the angels on quote-unquote judgment day when your life is evaluated and will either be found incredibly wanting or it'll be found with gold and precious gems in God's eyes. Now's the time to make that decision. If we're a vapor, you only got two seconds left before you dissipate. And, and, and seriously, why don't we think that way? Why, don't we, why do we expect to live to be a certain age? I got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, God's laughing right now. Why don't we picture ourselves as that vapor and enjoy today as long as it's called today? Because frankly, it might be it. And did you bring glory to God today? Just think about it. Did you bring glory to God today in any way? Did you ask his will when you're making your decisions? Because that brings glory to God right there. So on the board, the other thing we talked about is not having any expectations in this world. None. Drop them. Because most of them are lies. And the other ones are blessings from God that God hasn't seen fit to say yes yet. So don't have any expectations in this world. Expectations, if you really think about it, really come from arrogance. Because you're saying, I deserve this. You know, do we deserve anything good at all? That God even thought about us and created us. We don't deserve. Forget getting, quote unquote, the things we want. So don't have expectations in this world. Expectations, if you really think about it, come from arrogance. We can live one day at a time by His grace, knowing that it's only His grace that keeps us alive. And that's the change in perspective that He wants us to have and live with each and every day. We can take advantage of today and live it for Him, as long as it's today, because it may be our last day, and we'll be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ very soon, each and every one of us. So take advantage of today. Not for yourself, for Him. In this way, if we do this, we will be set free from the entrapments of this world. From the TV shows that we've been trained with that tell us a different story about life. From movies that entice us to build a life for self. All right? Listen, even the, even the most wholesome movies and TV shows are laced with lies from Satan. Don't think they're not. Even the good stuff. Okay, always take those things with a grain of salt. Take the good stuff if, if it's in there. Hopefully you're watching good stuff. But realize that there's lies laced in there. Even things that seem good like the American dream. To preoccupy us with the, the ways of the world. Instead of being a pilgrim for our Lord like Abraham, just following God when, when he says go here and go there. So... <clears throat> Never underestimate the foolishness that the devil has deceived us into, the lie that he sold us from childhood, and that you and I have been trained up in the lie. So there's a lot of garbage to get rid of. There's a lot of garbage 
that we still think is good in our soul that's not. So the first step is to what? See it all as truth, right? Acknowledge it, admit it, and then allow God to, to cleanse us one day at a time by His gentle grace as He does it. But agree with God, right? Isn't that what we've been learning? Confession is agreeing with God. Agree with Him about everything. Agree with Him about everything. I heard on Caleb, I don't even know the verse, but there's a verse in Job that says, when you agree with God, you have peace. When you agree with God, you have peace. It's really, that's the simplicity of life right there. And another way to look at living in that gospel reality. Repentance and faith, right? Confession and pressing on. It's a wonderful, simple pattern for us. So, life is temporary. Live it for God, your creator. Allow that change of perspective if you need it. And uh, make tomorrow a new day, because it always is. You are a child of God, and you do not belong here, not for long. So live the gospel reality to which you were called. Live saved and victorious. Do good to all men along the way, and swing freely in the game of life, one day at a time. I love that thought, and that golf analogy. You have to golf probably to get the idea of that, but the minute you tense up, you hit the ball in the woods. It's so true. But the minute you just relax and swing freely, it's amazing. It's the opposite of what you think will happen. And that is a spiritual life, isn't it? The way God has for us is the opposite of the way we think things should happen. But if we submit, if we agree with him, we can just have a good time while we're bringing him glory. You're already victorious being in Christ. So live like it. That's the perspective that sanctifies us. Some of us faster than others due to what we allow our flesh to do in getting in the way. So let's talk about the Creator and Redeemer. That's who God must be acknowledged as by both believer and unbeliever. And isn't it interesting, I hope you're seeing this correlation, this is another thing we've been learning that applies to the believer and the unbeliever. That continues after salvation, in other words. All right? It applies to the unbeliever first to acknowledge the Creator and Redeemer for salvation. And it applies to the believer also in living the spiritual life to acknowledge the Creator and Redeemer. Think about Romans 1, 16 and 17 again. We're not going to turn there right now because it will come up, uh, I think, on Thursday evening. But what gives us the power to live as a righteous man? It says, the righteous man shall live by faith in verse 17. But in verse 16... What gives us the power? It's the gospel. And that's where Pastor came up, I think, with this term, living in the gospel reality. The power is the gospel, and the righteous man will live by faith in that very thing. So even the believer, even Abraham, was declared righteous because he lived by faith. You know all the great works Abraham did? It's almost an oxymoron. All the incredible works that Abraham did, he was willing to sacrifice his son. He almost killed his son because God told him to and he was going to obey. What does it take to do that work? Tremendous, pure faith, right? So all the works we do can only be, if they're divine, a result of the righteous man living by faith. So that's where the power comes from, the gospel. The very same gospel that saved us 
continues to be the method of saving us each and every day and even sanctifying us because the righteous man will live by faith. What's the greatest thing we should have faith in every day? The gospel. What's the thing we should never, ever lose sight of every day? The gospel. What's the source of our power to live by faith? The gospel. And so we have this supernatural life from the simplicity of God's plan and God's ways. As Pastor Collins has mentioned, salvation and the gospel cannot be captured by a short, neat little definition. In fact, I mentioned on Sunday, I believe it's a story that needs to be told, and it should be told that way. Salvation is really the story of the Creator and Redeemer and what He's done for us as sinners. We saw this throughout the book of Acts. You can almost read any chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, it might be a fun project, if you will, to go through the book of Acts and say, where can I see the apostles presenting salvation as a story? How many times does it happen? And there's quite a few chapters we already noted. So salvation is not one memorized scripture or sentence, which I fell into that trap for many years, you know, and I don't want to say oversimplifying, but maybe that's the right term, I don't know. But also having it be a certain memorized sentence or scripture for everybody. And that's just not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a conversation. How much have we been talking about relationships? How much does that come up? And when you have relationships with people, isn't your relationship with every person different? All right, can, can, can you not say one thing to one of your friends, but not say another thing to another one of your friends? Right? Because there's a certain understanding and rapport, and, and you, you get to know each person because every person's individual. And so the story of salvation should be different to every individual you meet. And it's still a story. It's still the same basic story, right? Same pattern, repentance and faith, for example, creator and redeemer. But it's different for every single person. And you remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? That might be our best example. And I'd suggest that as your homework for tonight since tomorrow there's no Bible study. Go back to Acts chapter 7. That's probably the most detailed story you're going to get. And Stephen doesn't hold back. He goes back to the Old Testament and he starts going through telling the story to people that already know the story or should know the story. But awesome example. Awesome example. And uh, I can't wait to try this with people that, that I come across, you know, because um, who doesn't love a story, first of all? And whether they want to believe it or not, that's up to them. That's, that's their own will between them and God. But to say, you know what, let me tell you a story about salvation. I, I want you to understand this story. And go back as far as the Spirit tells you to go back. Because guess what? If you've been in the Word of God any amount of time, you know the story. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Tell the story of God. From creator to redeemer. Maybe from Old Testament to new. But definitely through the cross and through the resurrection. So part of the salvation story is that although there is accountability to God as creator. And that's been a strong emphasis in our ministry lately. The accountability to God as creator. That you and I have as sinners. Okay, And the unbeliever needs to know that when given the gospel, right? You're, you're accountable to God one day. 
you need to be saved from sin. You need to repent and admit that you're guilty before Him and that you need His grace and mercy. So there's that. That's part of the the salvation story. But then there's also the grace and mercy available to those that turn to Christ as Redeemer. So again, think about that pattern. And it holds true for the unbeliever and for the believer. But it begins by understanding our accountability to our Creator. Understanding God as your Creator can do many things before and after your day of salvation. It leads to a proper perspective of fear of God as He is sovereign, as King of the universe. Do you ever think about all the superheroes that come out, have come out, keep coming out, right? All the new movies. Isn't it all about who the King of the universe is? Kind of like, you know, King of the Mountain. Isn't that what it's all about? Captain America or, you know, who's going to defeat who? What is it? It's a desire in man to know the powerful one, the most powerful one. And Satan fills in these substitutes, you know, check this one out, check this one out, check this one out. Here's a possibility. Put your hope in him, put your hope in him, put your hope in him. And all it is is the same old desire to know and submit, even though the flesh doesn't want to, it really does, to know and submit to the king of the universe. And that king of the universe can do whatever the heck he wants. And that should give every man pause that he's not in control of his life whatsoever. The day of our death is the sovereign decision of our creator God. And there's no escaping him, is there? A lot of people on this earth think they're going to be able to escape that meeting, just because they don't believe in it. And because they don't believe in it, they think it's not actually going to take place, of course, because they don't believe it. But it has to take place. It's the course of things. So every man needs to realize the need for repentance before a holy and righteous God that has the power and right to judge you and to take your life from you anytime he sees fit. As believers, we have a different perspective now because we've been saved by grace. We know the Redeemer, all right? But there's still a place for that fear of your sovereign creator. So we as believers, for example, we repent towards God in things like confession when we need to. It's an attitude that continues after the day of our salvation, our humility before our creator. So on the board again, living in the gospel reality or being saved every day, if you will, it includes this attitude of repentance and humility. This attitude of humility before the Creator. And being sanctified includes this as well. And as we've seen, they're unified. They're united. We try to cast our little religions out of our souls, right? We know we have idols. We all have idols. Things that we get preoccupied with. Maybe even worship for lack of a better word. And the reminder of God as our sovereign creator and a healthy fear of him should help us do this thing. And again, I think that's where we underestimate the importance of acknowledging God and who he is as the omnipotent one. You know, the importance of having fear for God. Um, That's what made the Old Testament believers great, as we're going to see in a minute proper fear and respect toward God. 
which we can, at least I've seen in my own life, get a little bit um, cocky because we're saved, a little bit uh, too um, relaxed around God because He treats us in grace. Uh, I hope you know what I'm trying to say, but there's something that we can do when we lose sight of proper fear of the Creator. And we talked about on Sunday, and uh, I'm not sure why the Spirit keeps bringing this up. All right, aren't we done with this? One of the little religions that fear of God can help cast out for us is sexual idolatry. We should not be foolish and think there are not consequences for rejecting God in this matter. Let's go again to 1 Thessalonians 4, because he wants us to, even though you don't want to read this. <laughs> uh, it's all grace, right? This is all part of his grace and bringing out the garbage and helping us see it all as truth. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, it means to be set apart for Him, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter. So in context, it's talking about sexual idolatry, right? Don't even... Defraud, defraud your brother in any way in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. It's not Captain America that's going to come get you, but it's the Lord. He's the avenger of all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. We saw this on Sunday. To you. You have a conscience. He's in your conscience. So you're rejecting Him when He convicts you. If we get out of our own way and humble ourselves before our Creator God, we will live the sanctified life but it takes acknowledging who he really is and his power. God doesn't hold the rod for nothing. He holds it to use it when necessary for good, and he'll use it. And as we see in verse 6, there's a proper place for fearing God's punishment. As he's a good father, and as a good father, he's going to discipline his children, even harshly if necessary, because he knows the end. He knows the end goal that he has in mind for us. And he'll do whatever he needs to do because he knows that will minimize our regrets in heaven. You know? I mean, think big picture here. Step back for a minute. Just 
you know, think about being in heaven for a minute, facing him at, at the judgment seat, right? And now your life is totally over. There's no going back. There's no glimpses. There's no um, recourse. You can't do anything. And here you are in front of him. And in front of you is eternity with him. And on that very day, you and I are going to thank him for the harsh ways he punished us throughout our lives. Because those things are the things that got our attention, the things that hurt us the most, right? Usually the things that get our attention the most, pain. I was thinking about pain, what a blessing pain is. Because without pain, we'd have no knowledge of what hurts us or can destroy us even. And yet, so God uses these things so that we won't have regrets on that day. Think big picture, right? So God's going to do whatever it takes so that on that day, you'll be able to say, thank you. Wow, I needed that. It was horrible when I went through it, but look what I did after that. Look how I followed you after that. And I lived by faith after that thing, which was brutal. But, wow, I needed it. And now look at all the fruit I produced in the 30 years after that, or the whatever. And that's what's going to happen. And so he's not going to hold back. I mean, he doesn't hold the rod for nothing. And on the board, look again at the translation in the NIV of 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. And that in this matter, sexual idol- uh, immorality, actually, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. Does it say for some such sins? God's not a respecter of persons, right? So God is going to be consistent with everybody because he's perfectly fair God and he knows what to do with each, each one of us as well. So the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Are you forgiven? Yes. Are you under grace as a believer in Christ? Absolutely. And part of the grace is this. Part of the grace is receiving this when necessary. And a lot, God will use that to get us to a new place that we'll be forever thankful for. So on the board, God as our Father loves us so much and He has great noble plans for His children. But when we repeatedly violate His noble plans, He will discipline us when needed to help us get out of our own way so we don't just waste our life away. I mean, only God knows how many people he took home early because they just wouldn't listen. And he was patient and patient and patient and patient. And maybe he took them home 10, 20 years before his intention for them, his original intention. Maybe he just took them home early. He said, now your heart is so hard, like the Pharaoh in the Old Testament, I'm going to use you for my glory anyway in some way, and then I'm just going to take you home because there's no more chance. There's no more hope for you. You know, and God forbid we ever get to that point. But there are people out there that do because they reject the word of God over and over and over. They repeatedly violate his noble plans for them. So they leave him no choice as a good father, if they're a believer. So God's plans for us include possessing our own vessel in sanctification and honor. Just look at that phrase in verse 4. I mean, doesn't that kind of give you the chills in a way like make you think of knighthood or the king bestowing on you a certain privilege or or position right 
He has called us to possess our bodies, our vessel, in sanctification and honor. So switching gears a little bit now, um, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I feel like I've been going fast. I don't know if I have, but uh, some new territory now that we'll get into in the last 15 minutes. Time flies. But Pastor Collins recently has said this, uh, last week actually said this basic principle. God is not a puppet, and you're not entitled to anything. That was the gist of it. I'm paraphrasing, but God's not a puppet. We've heard that for a while now. Stop trying to pull his strings and make him do what you want. And you're not entitled to anything. Entitled being the key word. That's a shock to us in America. We might say, I thought I was do these things. I thought I should expect these things. My neighbor has it. My brother has it. My sister has it. Why don't I have these things? And there's this underlying attitude, isn't it? It's like a little disgusting, childlike, spoiled child attitude. Why don't I have these things? That attitude of entitlement is something that we've been brought up with. And ask yourself, who taught you that? Where'd you get that from? It may have been your parents. It may have been television. It may have been both. Where'd your parents get it from? Was it the lie of the American dream? That this is what you're here for, to have it all? Was it, I don't know, movies? Was it your grandfather, your grandmother? What was it? Who taught you that? Well, I know in most Bible-believing homes, when a child is brought up, there's no sense of entitlement. Right? There's this attitude of grace and appreciating every blessing from God, and we don't deserve a thing. But in a non-Bible, you know, found, biblically-founded home, family, might still be a family of believers, but if the word's not first, right, then all the lies trickle in. You're meant to have this. You're meant to have this. You're entitled. You should have this. Work hard. Go to college. Get rich for me, son. Make me proud. Is that what life is all about? For a lot of people, including believers, it is. But we're not entitled to anything. Some of us say, if I'm not getting it, well, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll work 70 hours a week. I'll lie a little bit, cheat a little bit. I'm not really going to hurt anybody. I'm just going to make sure I get ahead. Make sure I don't tell the whole truth to my customers at work because then that would squash my profits a little bit. But, you know, God understands. I'm supposed to have this stuff. Where does that attitude come from? And this attitude might include sexual idolatry, too. Why do we follow any idol? Think about that for a minute. Why do we follow any idol? Whatever it is, whatever your weakness is, whatever you, you tend towards in your flesh, why do we follow any idol? Is it because we're impatient for God's blessings? Do we try to find a substitute to satisfy our desires now? I think the answers are probably yes to those questions for most. If God says no, we're like, really? Hmm, let me see what I can conjure up. My flesh has an idea, actually. Lord, hold on a second. I'll be back in a little while. Might be a year or two, actually. I'll be back. I have an idea to get what I want. 
and I'm going to go this way. I know I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to go this way. So what do we do? We snub our nose at God, right? The flesh starts to wander. Our mind starts to wander, listening to the flesh. But, and I think this is part of this lesson on the creator and fear. If we truly have fear for God, we won't go there. I have a pastor friend years ago. He said to me, and I'll never forget it. It's kind of stuck in my head. Years ago, we were talking about something. I don't remember what it was, but he said, if I go there, God's going to kick my butt. And as a grace-oriented believer, it took, it took me back. I, I, it threw me back for a minute. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're under grace. What do you mean God's going to kick your butt? In a way, that's what I was saying in my mind. But I was wrong. He's right. The God of grace will kick your butt. Just like a good father will give his son a good spanking, for lack of a better word, for um, breaking the rules of the house or stealing or whatever's going on. Can you imagine a father seeing his son steal and say, you know what, he really shouldn't have done that. And then just turning around and going on with life. Like allowing it to maybe con- continue, right, without a recognition of how bad it is. So you think about that form of child abuse, right? It's what it is, really. Not letting your child fully understand the repercussions of certain things and then letting him go live a worse life and letting him get into more trouble, hurting himself, right? So, where was I? We're not entitled to anything, right? It comes back to that attitude, attitude of entitlement and that true fear for God will drop that and will stop us from following our flesh. Your creator knows you perfectly. Individually, you, each and every one of us, he knows us perfectly. And therefore, he knows perfectly the right time to bless us with certain things. And if he says no, guess what? He knows. He has all knowledge. You might not like it, but apparently you might need to grow up first to be able to appreciate that blessing or not ruin it, as we often do, don't we? When we get it, we ruin it because we didn't have capacity. We weren't ready. We couldn't you know, appreciate it in humility. Maybe we received the gift in arrogance and ran with it in our own plans. So here's the new news flash of the day that, well, I guess we have about five minutes left. This might be one of our last points. You are here for God, not for yourself. Huh, crazy. You are here for God, not for yourself. But doesn't your flesh cringe when you read that? Mine does. Your flesh, not your spirit, not, not your new nature. But when I read that, there's this little part of me, it's clearly the flesh that says, does it have to be that way? I want it to be about me. I want certain things, and I want them now. And that's that flesh creeping in, taking the old lie out that we've been brought up with since childhood, taking it out of the bag, and claiming that one. But we're here for God, not for ourselves. That's God's divine call on each of our lives. Maybe we should make that into a neon sign and put it outside our bedroom window, flashing. That's probably one of the most important points 
like, like if there's like, if you were to say, okay, there's a handful of things I got to remember. That's one, right? Put a neon sign out your window like uh, Kramer. Remember the Kenny Rogers chicken sign flashing outside his window? Couldn't sleep. And then he got addicted to the chicken. Anyway. <laughs> uh, that'd be a great thing to do. You know, I'll pay you 100 bucks if you do that. Make a neon sign out of this. But seriously, is there anything more important to remember than that? That your very life is for God's purposes. So as we close, we'll go to a couple of scriptures here on this. We need to fear God properly and realize all blessings he gives us are from him and also for him. And only proper fear and respect of God does that. We need to fear God properly and realize all blessings he gives are from him and for him. Colossians 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 8.6. We have no problem with the first part of this, right? You know, even as believers, we'll say, you know, thank you, God, for this. Thank you, Father, for that, right? We thank him for all the blessings. We acknowledge that the blessings are from him. Cool. But for him, that involves a different perspective. You mean it's not all for just for my pleasure? Of course God does give us blessings at times. He wants us to be happy and enjoy things. But you mean you gave me this to enjoy, but for you, for your purposes? There's that flesh cringing again a little bit. All the good things our Father gives us are ultimately for his glory. Everything. And since we've been talking about acknowledging God, our Creator, let's turn to Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. So not only are all blessings that we receive from Him, but they're also for Him. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, talking about Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. For him. And it's funny that Jesus is the center of this verse as the creator because don't you just want everything to be for him? You can, you, can, you can relate to him a little bit better, can't you? He became a man. He did what he did on the cross for us. So maybe that's our avenue into a different perspective that, yeah, you know what? I do want all my blessings to be for him too. Go to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. So on the board, for Him. That might be another shorter, less expensive neon sign to make. All good things the Father gives us are ultimately to show Satan and the fallen angels how gracious our God is to us sinners and 
how God can turn sinners into sanctified creatures who can live sanctified lives, set apart from the devil's world, set apart from idolatry, set apart for his purposes. That's really what it's all about, right? Big picture. Our lives are for him. Our salvations for him, our sanctifications for him. And we, we live a life like that. We're going to be so happy for all eternity that we didn't waste away this vapor that he gave us, that we didn't blow it away. We're going to be so glad. But it takes humility, doesn't it? It takes fear for God to have the right perspective. So again, as we close, all good things the Father gives us are ultimately to show Satan and the fallen angels how gracious our God is to us sinners and how God can turn sinners into sanctified creatures who can live sanctified lives, even in the devil's world. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege of honoring you, honoring your word. Help us live the gospel reality. Help us live in proper fear and awe of you as our creator and our redeemer. We thank you, Father, that you're a God of justice and you're a God of grace and love. And we thank you for your solution for our lives. We ask, Father, that you help us take your word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. Help us tell the story of salvation with peace and joy in our hearts because we know who we are in Christ. We ask this in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen.